It's Friday, December 4th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Black Futures, Jenna Wortham and Kimberly Drew join to talk about their new collection of photos, artwork, essays, and memes to tell the story of contemporary Black artists and creators. We explore the dialogue between digital and analog, how young Black artists are reckoning with our current moment, and how art is changing amid the political landscape in the U.S. Then, Friday means it's time Time for tough questions with our CEO, Suzanne Nossel. We'll discuss the president's 46-minute disinformation tirade, concerns over vaccine myths, and how dissidents may be a priority for a Biden administration. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. Black Futures is a new book from Kimberly, Drew, and Jenna Wortham that collects photos, essays, memes, tweets, and poems to tell the narrative of Black creators. A beautiful work. It's maybe easier to see than to explain, but here to help me out, Kimberly, Drew, and Jenna Wortham, who join me now. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. (laughs) That's a very cheery hello for 10 o'clock in the morning. I appreciate that. Uh, Well, thank you both for being here. Um, So Kimberly, I just want to start because I feel like my introduction doesn't know justice. Mm -hmm. How do you describe Black Futures? Wow. Yes. Thank you so much for having us, first of all. Um, I would say, you know, our definition of Black Futures as a pair, I think, often changes. But I think the easiest way to draw a circle around what we intended to do Um, was to ask this broader question of what it means to be Black and alive um, and invite a really beautiful and diverse and geodiverse set of creatives together to answer it. And so the book extends from um, dance floors in Johannesburg to um, classrooms in Finland to um, Arabers working out of Baltimore, um, really in the interest of taking on the task of archiving what it means, um, literally what it means to be Black and alive right now, because we were so informed by projects like Toni Morrison's Black Book, Fire of the Harlem Renaissance, um, and so many others that really uh, so gracefully, so gracefully um, were responding to Black art and culture, because I think at the end of the day, we really... um, I think any cultural group, any any group of people in general really benefit from being able to tell their own stories. Um, and so that's what Jenna and I set out to do. So Jenna, I mean, from, from what Kimberly just said, I mean, this idea of what it what it means to, to have Black art right now and Black creativity right now, what do you think this book might do to help shift a narrative a bit about what we think of as art and creative work in, in, in the U.S. and globally? Mm, I mean, I, I wonder, I mean, I, I, (laughs) our hope I think is that it will just round it out. Right. Like, I don't know that there's a narrative that needs to be shifted or changed, but it feels really, really good as Kimberly put beautifully to get our arms around something that we intuitively and and instinctively instinctively know is happening and, and are bearing witness to, but to get our arms around this flourishing and just tremendous dialogue, you know, that's intergenerational, that people are riffing on each other, people are in community and they're in community in new ways, right? Like we're able to be in community um, with other parts of the diaspora in, in ways that we haven't been prior. And so it just feels really good to catalog that and even just a portion of it, right? Cause there's so much more that's happening than we could ever, ever capture in a book, but just to kind of 
name it, right? And name it in a way that's not ephemeral, that's not going to disappear in a tweet thread, that's not going to disappear when, you know, the next new media website goes uh, under and those articles are lost, but to sort of really name that there is an incredible abundance in, in Black art and Black culture right now, and we're so lucky to be a part of it. So, um, yeah. And I would also, I wanted to hop in also and just Please. add, because I think everything that Jenna said is so exquisite. Um, but the only thing I want to underscore is that everyone has the capacity to do this recording. And mm. this is just the version that we did. Mm -hmm. And I think that mm -hmm. if there's a, a shift, it's that everyone takes on that responsibility and also takes on the trust of themselves to do it. Um, because yeah, we, we all have facility to record and remember to, and to understand that if so much of our, our work and our connectivity and our experiences are happening in this digital space that we may not have capacity uh, to record or there may not be an external office or archive that can record it, we can take that on and do that for ourselves and on our own behalf. Yeah, I mean, Kimberly, that, that idea, I mean, this idea of, of trying to capture this moment with some concern in the background that there's a fleetingness to the digital side of all of this, that we might not be able to hold on to it. I mean, this is your second book this year. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, you've made such a name, I think, for yourself and for, for, for the moment in the digital space. I'm wondering book, why, why the medium of the book? And, and as you said, you know, how is it different from digital platforms to archive and name? Yeah. I mean, I think, it's it's absolutely something that's inspired by my relationship with Jenna as a writer that I really respect. Um, because even when Jenna and I became friends, I wasn't writing as much. And I was really reading writers like Jenna, writers like Ashley Ford, writers like Eve, um, to learn how to be a better writer, to learn how to better articulate the things that I was taking in um, and to take my ideas more seriously. Um, and I think having worked so much in the digital realm and having worked in within the the world. So my background is in the arts. The arts is like, if you're not writing, no one's listening. You know, you can show up and you can do as many public programs as you want to. You can write as many articles as you want to. But when you really enter into the zone of the book, it's almost impossible to be ignored. That's when things get applied to syllabi. That's when, you know, you can just get a lot more accomplished in terms of pushing forth your ideas, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think that that is something that should be maybe moved away from because it is kind of an elitist idea. Um, but for me as a writer and, and the kind of books and projects that I wanted to work on, um, which are only possible through this incredible support networks that I've had, is a real interest in making sure that the ideas get spread as widely as possible. Um, because Black Futures initially started um, Jenna, is, you know, it started as Jenna's idea and Jenna was really interested in possibly making a zine project. And I think from my kind of impulse as an art person, I was like, okay, it needs to be something that maybe can reach more people than a zine can reach. And the book is really interested in zine culture. And we have this incredible library of zines um, compiled by Devin Morris, but we wanted to make something that would have an international um, kind of reach in a way that maybe zines aren't always able to do. Um, but for me, it's, it's, it's about saying um it's about yeah like resisting erasure has, has been the biggest principle of any of the work that i've done yeah hey, jenna i mean i want to i want to turn to you i mean first if you have a reaction to that no <clears throat> excuse me no that was beautifully put so um i thought that yeah. was great kimberly mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, Jenna, I, you know, because it's easily accessible for people who are listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Times published um, some excerpts of the book, and it included an image of a work by David Leggett called Invited to the Cookout. And you wrote, um, you truly cannot look away. I, I'm wondering if you can describe that piece in particular and, and why a piece like that is part of this collection. Sure. Um, David's work, who Kimberly brought to the book, is among, you know, his his pieces appear multiple times throughout the book and they're among our favorites. <laughs> and I think for a number of reasons. Um, so the piece that you're describing, divided, Invited to the Cookout, um, is a, a work of mixed media, multimedia um, work. And it's, there's an, a drawing of Bart Simpson, but he's black, so black Bart. And he looks really anxious and he's watching a scene unfold before him. And it's hard to see what the scene is because it's kind of set picture within a picture. And then there's a swipe of a rainbow, a pastel rainbow across the frame as well. And it's a blur of motion to people. But those who remember, you know, this incident a few summers ago where um, a white police officer tackled a young black teenager to the ground who was at a pool. And the video is just really horrific and touched off, rightfully so, a lot of pieces about Black people in public spaces, you know, our historical relationship to pools in this country um, and not being allowed into them. And um, it's just such a, it's such an, it was such a disturbing event and such an arresting image of this, you know, grown adult man who is employed by, you know, paid by our taxes, employed by our government um, with his knee on the back of this young woman who is in a bikini, right? And so, um, There's something about this work that is really, it's brilliant, first of all. It's absolutely brilliant because your eyes don't know where to go and you don't know what's happening. And it requires a lot of knowledge of popular culture to understand the literacy. And I think David's work is masterful in the way that it commands visual culture and pop culture. And, you know, I think a lot about his work is almost sometimes being like, a stand-up comedy set, right? Like you're looking at all these images and then you read the caption, like there's a punchline, but like, who is the joke on? And, you know, it's, it's in the book because it's just a tremendous, it's a tremendous work. And also I think it really speaks to what we're trying to do in the book, which is touch on all of these areas of, of things that are important to us, you know, and things that we want to remember and don't want to forget, but also we're not trying to make a book that is, just deeply steeped in black trauma. You know, it's it's there in the pages anyway, you know, because we've got these chapters that deal with grief and deal with memory and deal with legacy and ownership. But it also, it's it allows us to look at how artists are processing all of the black pain and trauma that's, that's inherent to the history of this country and our experience on this land. Um, and, and in a way that's just undeniably clever. Yeah. I mean, Kimberly, lastly, I mean, I, I don't want to flatten this work or say that it's about one thing, but, you know, it is called it is called Black Futures. And I wonder how, you know, in our moment that we're in right now, sort of a post-election, um, a new presidential administration on the horizon, this sort of wave of activism, but also state-sponsored violence against Black people in the United States, you know, how do you think this book might be read or interpreted or seen? And, and how do you see the future of Black art as it stems from this moment? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, I think that at its best, this book is designed to be a resource. And I think, 
I can speak on behalf both of, of both Jenna and I. Um, the great privilege of writing this book is that we got it back first. Um, and so in this right. moment of all these things going on, we were able to sit on Jenna's porch and kind of rifle through these pages and, and look at the different recipes and instructions and artworks and conversations and um, incredible essays that we were able to compile um, together in, a, in you know, a somewhat different moment. Um, but in many ways, I think this book is really an extension of a really um, keen interest in providing media and providing, um, I guess, thoughts um, that are restorative for others. Mm. Um, because we do, you know, I don't want to be like too woo-woo and say like, this is a book about healing, but it's not not, you know. Mm. Um, we really want people to sit with this and see themselves in it and to understand that you're in part of an incredible legacy and that also, yes, you are living through deeply traumatic times, but also, yes, there are so many spaces and reasons to be joyful and to be thankful and to feel connected and to feel powerful. And if you should forget how to feel powerful, turn to this page and it might remind you to be powerful. Mm. Um, and so I think for, for, you know, the book in this time, I just hope that it, it's, a, it's a wellspring for people and whether you love it or hate it, that it is a generative text. Um, and I think that that, if there's any success I feel confident about, I think it will do that. Um, yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Well, uh, Kimberly Drew, Jenna Wortham, the book is Black Futures. Um, run, don't walk. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for having us. Now for our weekly tough questions segment. That's when we turn to Pen America CEO Suzanne Nossel and ask her our tricky questions about free expression from the week gone by. And Suzanne joins me now. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So, Suzanne, uh, the president this week went on a 46-minute tirade. Um, continuing to spout falsehoods about the presidential election that came just days after his own attorney general, Bill Barr, said massive fraud claims were, in a word, malarkey. How destabilizing is all of this disinformation? And how do we keep all of this from unspooling as we head into sort of the next phase of a presidential transition and into the new year? Look, I, I think there are two ways of looking at it. You know, on the one hand, it's unprecedented. It's shocking to have a president of the United States sort of sitting in the uh, diplomatic room at the White House, you know, going over in meticulous detail, just completely spurious and debunked claims, having mobilized his White House staff to, you know, prepare PowerPoint presentations for him. You know, there's something profoundly disturbing uh, and inimical to democracy, uh, government accountability, fact-based discourse. You know, on the other hand, look, we've lived with this for four years. Uh, he's now been voted out of office. He will leave office in six weeks. And, you know, that that will be at least a point of significant diminution in the influence that this sort of disinformation super spreading has. And so, you know, I think there there's some merit to the Biden camp's approach, which is basically to ignore it. You know, it's bloviation, it's baseless. I think the question I have, which I'd like to see more reporting on is really, you know, how, how is this breaking down in terms of his supporters? You've got Republican officials in 
Georgia, who are quite clearly, you know, fed up and angry about the ways in which this messaging is stoking violence. You have other Republicans on the Hill that seem, you know, quite ready to nod along politely at every absurdity. And so there's a real spectrum there. I'm interested in sort of the ordinary voters and, you know, what they do. They look at this as just, you know, a, a sore loser on steroids. You know, do they actually credit his claims, notwithstanding all the Republican election officials and Trump appointed judges who have thrown them out? So I think that's an important question. You know, as, as far as going forward, I also have a big question in my mind about how the media is going to cover this. Uh, you know, I just worry that they are so used to Trump as this uh, intoxicating kind of ratings bait, uh, you know, that, that they've had now for five years since the early stages of his campaign. You know, and, and, and if you remember, at that point, he was just absolutely indulged. You know, he'd go on air on all of these cable shows uh, and be given unlimited time and platform. And yeah, then they realized they sort of uh, contributed to the creation of a monster. And I think the question of the media's role in, uh, you know, usher, helping to usher Trump off stage is a really important one. You know, the mechanics of a transition cabinet appointments, new policies, staffing decisions, uh, you know, can can be maybe seem a little mundane compared to the ranting and raving and Twitter storms. But I really think it's important that the media begin to shift focus here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we've focused a lot, I think, in these conversations on disinformation around the election. But, you know, one thing that obviously is going to come to the fore is disinformation around the pandemic, um, especially news this week that Britain is moving forward with a COVID-19 vaccine. The U.S. is probably not far behind. But there's a lot of distrust out there about vaccines um, in the national bloodstream. Do you do you worry that Americans aren't taking scientific guidance seriously? Could we could we see large numbers of Americans refuse a vaccine because of, you know, conspiracy theories about Bill Gates and and other, you know, false plots online? Of course. And, you know, to be honest, this is something we worried about uh, and, and flagged four years ago when Trump first came into office, that if there was this systemic campaign, which he seemed you know, already then to be committed to waging, to uh, make it impossible for the American people to sort of tell the difference between fact and falsehood, that this you know, would affect society in a whole range of ways, including impairing public health response. And you know, now we're seeing just that. You know, we have all of these uh, supporters of the president who've become convinced, you know, been deliberately convinced by him that the, the mainstream media and credible journalism is not to be trusted, that government scientists, uh, you know, aren't telling the truth or have a political agenda. And so, you know, of course, they now doubt this and, and uh, are, you know, potentially at risk of, of rejecting and refusing the vaccine. I was very glad to see news this week that former presidents George W. Bush, uh, Obama, and Bill Clinton all kind of came together and said they're going to uh, uh, join together and take the vaccine, uh, you know, right at the top, be at the, t uh, the front of the line to hope, hopefully build some confidence. I almost feel like we, our, we had our campaign, what to expect when you're electing. And, you know, somebody ought to do it. I don't know that it's Pet America because uh, we're not a health organization, but, you know, what, what to expect when you're being vaccinated, and, you know, really letting people know what are 
the vetting and scrutiny uh, processes that a vaccine goes through. What are the tests like? You know, how is it that uh, we become confident that a vaccine is effective, uh, that it's safe? You know, there are really rigorous protocols that have been developed over a long period of time that people don't know much about them just because it's not something you ordinarily focus on. And, you know, I, I think it's very important that the scientists are resisting pressure right now from the White House to further accelerate their timetable. I think it's okay. Let Britain go first. Of course, we would all like to have this vaccine imminently. I, mean, I, I would I would hold out my arm to receive it, you know, right now if it was available. But I also think the more we can build up confidence among the American public, the better this rollout is going to go. And the sooner we can get back to normal, because just about everybody will be vaccinated. So, you know, I think Trump now is trying to, I heard this yesterday, uh, uh, Kaylee McEnany, the, the White House spokeswoman calling it the Trump vaccine. And I think that's what they're trying to do. And so they're putting pressure on the CDC to accelerate the approval. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the public health leaders are right, absolutely right to refuse that. This cannot be seen to be politically driven. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me switch just briefly to what was, I think, a, a painful week um, for people who who stand in the vanguard of free expression worldwide. We saw pro-democracy activist leader Joshua Wong uh, sentenced this week in Hong Kong to more than a year in prison for his role in pro-democracy protests. Iranian women's rights advocate and Pan America honoree Nasreen Sotadeh, who was granted a brief furlough from an Iranian prison, but now heading back this week. Um, does the incoming Biden administration have freeing dissidents at the top of its foreign policy priority list? Um, and if not, should they? You know, I, I don't know that it's ever going to be quite at the top of the foreign policy priority list. But I do think this is an incoming administration that has shown you know, a good deal of concern and commitment about cases like that of Joshua Wong or Nazarene so today being willing to speak out pretty consistently you know the question will always become you know how do they factor these issues into these highly complex relationships that they're going to be managing you know in the case of joshua wong the relationship with china uh, i think we will see more and more credible emphasis on human rights in a Biden administration. I don't think we'll have, you know, the, the president, uh, you know, nodding in approval about internment camps in Xinjiang, uh, you know, but the, the question will be, you know, what are the effective ways to raise this? And I think there, you know, what we've seen is, is, is the simple fact of ensuring that top officials, whether it's the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, bring up these cases say the names when they're having their uh, meetings and summits and encounters with their foreign counterparts. That's extremely important. In the case of Nazrin Sudeh, you know, I, I think, you know, one has to be cognizant of the larger geopolitical context here. It was interesting to see uh, her furloughed on the day that uh, Vice President Biden was uh, projected to be the winner of the election. Uh, Tony Blinken, who is now the Secretary of State designate, had tweeted about Nazreen uh, just a few weeks earlier. So that seemed like a promising sign. And now, of course, we've had this assassination of you know one of the most important Iranian nuclear scientists, uh, and you know we don't know exactly who's responsible, but there are 
plenty of theories out there. And, you know, my guess is that would have something to do with uh, why Nazreen Sudaday, you know, now is being forced back into prison. So, you know, I would say for PEN America, we're going to have uh, our work cut out for us in terms of pushing on these cases in an environment of creeping authoritarianism around the world. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm also hopeful that we'll get some some more help from Washington. Yeah, me too. Well, Suzanne Nossel, author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. She's CEO of PEN America. And of course, you can catch Suzanne and all of our wonderful honorees on Tuesday at our PEN America virtual gala featuring uh, former U.S. President Barack Obama, among many other honorees. Suzanne, thank you so much. See you Tuesday. Thanks, Stephen. And that's our episode for Friday, December 4th. You can listen to all our shows at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And join us on Tuesday for our all-virtual gala celebration. It's free, it's online, and we'll be featuring a host of honorees, including Barack Obama, who will have a conversation with author Ron Chernow. It's a cannot miss. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you next week. <laughs>